from WGBH News in Boston. This is The Scrum. I'm Adam Riley. Each week on The Scrum Podcast, we talk about politics and media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. It's October 15th, the last day you can register to vote in Massachusetts before the election on November 4th. We'll hear in a bit from former Republican Governor Jane Swift, who ran Massachusetts for a couple years back in the early aughts. But first, I'm joined by WGBHnews.org Senior Editor Peter Kadzis. Hey, Peter. Hey, great to be here. And also, WGBH political analyst David Bernstein. What's up, David? Oh, good to be here, Adam, as always. Uh, let's talk a bit about some of the political headlines that are in the news right now. I want to start by talking about the brutal poll numbers that we're seeing from President Obama and the Democratic Party. I'm going to read from uh, a Tegan Goddard summary of a new ABC News Washington Post poll. The president's 40 percent job approval rating is the lowest of his career, and the Democratic Party's popularity is the weakest in polling back 30 years, with more than half of Americans seeing the party unfavorably for the first time. Why do you guys think this is? Well, let's start with the Democratic Party. They're afraid to stand for anything. Now, the flip side of the coin is the Republicans crazily stand for all sorts of bizarre things. Keep taking the the Democrats. The the Democrats have brought the economy back. They are the party that has the interests of working people at heart. They're the only ones who, even though their efforts to create new jobs have been insufficient in my book, they're the only ones even thinking that way. Okay, Uh, if all that is true, why these terrible numbers? Well, I'm saying because they don't say that. They don't stand for anything. For God's sakes, they're still afraid of Obamacare, which is working. Now, I realize it takes some wit some imagination, and some guts to make these points, but they're lacking in all three. Now for the president, charitably, I would say uh, the fact that he's been slapped around mercilessly by the Republicans has obviously taken a toll, but he's got to rise to the occasion. David, do you agree with Peter's analysis? I mean, generally speaking, yes. And, And I think that Obama and the Democrats have not been able to cash in on the positives that have come along uh, in the past few years. And in particular, and I think this poll might prove to be a bit of an outlier, uh, you know, clearly the direction is is where things are, but uh, this might be a little bit harsher than the reality. One thing that I would uh, that I would say has has caused a bit of a problem for the Democrats in this election cycle, the the big contested races right now are in Senate seats in generally red states where uh, Democrats six years ago, because it was a good year for Democrats, uh, picked up a bunch of seats and now they're trying to hold on to those seats or there's turnover. You know, So they're fighting the most visible national battles in places where it is tougher for them to make the kind of case that Peter is talking about in blue states and we'll see the reverse. All right. Uh, a couple things I did not hear either of you mention just now. Ebola, Syria, the Islamic State, Mm -hmm. what I have found, frankly, to be a sort of a feckless response to uh, the arrival of Ebola in the United States and the fact that we do not seem to be effectively combating the Islamic State in the Middle East, I would think, not having seen the crosstabs, that that's part of the reason that people don't see the president as doing his job well and have concerns about Democrats. Is that a fair uh, fair assumption for me to make? I'll say, let's... um group President Obama and Governor Patrick together. In talking about Ebola, in the language they use, the way they present themselves, they both come across as pointy-head know-it-all Ivy Leaguers. 
There's well, no, they are pointy-head uh, Ivy League. You said it, David. <laughs> there's a gap here. They are right to stress that Americans are at minimal risk of contracting the disease. They are wrong to stress that we're ready, and I think people sense that because you look across the nation that nurses in almost every state in the nation, as well as in Massachusetts, are saying – we haven't been sufficiently trained. And I would just add, you have the administration going from saying more intensified screening at domestic airports is unnecessary to saying, oh, in fact, we are going to do it at five airports. You have Tom Frieden, the head of the uh, Centers for Disease Control, saying now that we have a second nurse who contracted uh, Ebola down in Dallas, saying, oh, wow, in retrospect, it really would have been a good idea to send a CDC team down there to, to keep tabs on this. And uh, boy, I kind of wish we hadn't made that mistake. So I have wanted more... Uh, I guess, empathy, Peter, to your point about them sounding like pointy-head know-it-alls, but also more of a sense of, of competence coming from the Obama administration on this. Well, David. I think that's the, that's the big issue politically is uh, that, that this plays into uh, something that can help the Republicans generally, which is the government can't do anything right, whether it's stopping ISIS or ISIL, uh, whether it's uh, dealing with an Ebola crisis. And then that plays into Obamacare and, and the general idea of Democrats want to do stuff like this. I believe it was the same ABC poll. It may have been a different poll. Uh, showed that, that among Republicans nationally, ISIS is now the number one issue, uh, you know, when, when they ask, you know, what are the top issues uh, on your mind for the election? Uh, I mean, that's that's a remarkable... Well, it, it's uh, about to... ISIS is about to invade New Hampshire. I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, in part, it's because Republicans tend to want to focus on things other than the improving economy. So they, that's their talking points tend to be what seems to be going wrong. But also, if people were feeling better about the economy... I don't think that they would be as concerned about what's happening over in Syria. They certainly weren't concerned terribly about what was happening in Afghanistan or Iraq the last couple of years. All right. Next up, we're going to hear from former Governor Jane Swift. She but told us off air she is not pondering a return to uh, not in the politics. Car, I found her um, comments about Mitt Romney. Very interesting. Who, yep. of course, famously uh, ended her political career. And also and, that back and forth that you guys had about the extent to which Charlie Baker needs to uh, right. distance himself or doesn't need to distance himself from the national Republican brand was pretty interesting. And also you thought that I was very, very rude to her with a, with a particular comment. But I'll leave that to the viewers to Yeah, But I was to, listeners, that's a listeners. I was I'm laughing sorry, as I passed judgment. <laughs> Republican Jane Swift became the first female governor of Massachusetts in 2001 when Governor Paul Cellucci left to become the U.S. ambassador to Canada. At the time, she was the nation's youngest governor, but she had more than a dozen years of experience in politics. She'd been lieutenant governor since 1999, and before that, she served in the Massachusetts Senate. Swift, of course, left politics in 2003 when a guy named Mitt Romney, at the time a political novice, stepped onto the scene. And since then, she's largely stayed out of the political spotlight. Now she's the CEO of Middlebury Interactive Languages. She joined the Scrum from a studio at Middlebury College in Vermont. Governor Swift, welcome to the Scrum. Thank you very much for having me. I got to start by asking you about the narrative that Democrats have, have tried to put forward in the current governor's race, which, as you know, is that if you're a woman, you should be supporting Martha Coakley because Charlie Baker uh, just doesn't get the concerns of women and maybe views them in a problematic way. The Democrats have really been pushing this, 
but it doesn't seem to be sticking so far, judging from the polls, at least that I've seen. Uh, Baker seems to be doing pretty well with female voters. What have you thought of this back and forth as it's played out? I'm a strong supporter of Charlie Baker, and I think women want two things. First and foremost, they want members of both parties and candidates to respect their intelligence, which means that we don't vote based on genetics. We don't vote vote based on what your chromosome is. We actually have the ability to evaluate the strengths and weaknesses and the positions of uh, a variety of different candidates and base our vote on that. The other thing women want, too, is to make sure that we don't have a gendered race. We want to be evaluated and we want others evaluated based on their merits and to be treated fairly. And so I think actually that narrative from the Democratic Party cuts against uh, Martha Coakley in two ways. One, it doesn't recognize what it is that drives women's votes. And secondly, it actually turns it more into a gendered race, which is something that most women uh, will recoil against. I'm just curious if you have any sense of sort of the internal GOP thinking and feeling about this problem that I, you know, that this gender gap, however you want to put it, um, is there sort of collective concern? Uh, I know we see sort of every couple of years another national attempt to recruit Republican women to run and so forth and, and to, you know, close the gender gap. I think that both parties have a lot of work to do to make sure they're appealing to issues that are of concern to women. I think women care about high-quality education. I think they care about economic issues. I think we've got almost a decade uh, of slow economic growth that has been terrible for recent college graduates and younger people, for people without a college degree. And women care deeply, as do men, about those issues. I also think in Massachusetts right now, you know, women are increasingly the folks who are starting new businesses and who are managing family budgets. And so I think they look at Beacon Hill and say, we need somebody who's going to manage the business of state government, which is ultimately our hard-earned tax dollars, as efficiently as we would manage our own family's budget or as I would manage my own business. And I think that actually is why Charlie may be doing pretty well um, among women voters. I worked with him when he was in the administration And he is a very discerning, very sharp, very intelligent guy who pays attention to details. And by the way, I would back that uh, one of your observations up by saying that my wife runs our family budget. So, so she's actually much... my wife also runs our <laughs> my... family budget. So. so she's much more attuned to the pocketbook uh, issues. But but I do want to push back a little bit in this sense that no matter how much the Republican uh, candidates or party try to emphasize uh, what you're talking about, economic issues, education, so forth, there does seem to be not necessarily in a purely gender way, but but it, part of what drives the gender gap it seems to be some of the issues, I, I guess, compassion uh, has been a word that's come up in the governor's race. And, and I think that four years ago, Baker was not sufficiently concerned with the, you know, with the welfare sorts of issues. The, well, and then you throw in the fact that it seems to me like in recent election cycles, we've seen uh, either Republican candidates or prominent conservative voices like Rush Limbaugh make statements about women and healthcare specifically, sure. so women's uh, you know healthcare that that oh, exacerbate that you know certainly exacerbate right. the notion that, so that think, Republicans don't get it when it comes to 
contraception, for example. So I think, Adam, you're exactly hitting the nail on the head. I think that um, candidates for races, particularly in New England, are most at risk of losing broadly support of women when national Republicans, particularly on social issues, seem to be out of touch with reality on women's health care choices and women's decisions. And I think, frankly, Charlie Baker's done a much better job in this election season in differentiating and drawing fine distinctions between himself and the National Party on those social issues, which gives candidates the opportunity, men and women, the opportunity to judge his candidacy based on the pocketbook economics uh, managerial issues that I think are important uh, to voters across Massachusetts. So so I, I agree with you that, that Charlie Baker uh, has done a really good job of presenting himself as sort of the uh, the moderate uh, on a lot of these types of issues that you're saying. But I'm wondering if he has failed to stand up to the National Party in any kind of big, visible way. I'm thinking of when Bill Weld uh, in 96, when he was running for Senate, went to the National Republican Convention and with some other moderate uh, governors really made a sort of protest about the party's platform on abortion and so forth. Well, so I think uh, campaigns are all about strong narratives and narratives do depend on the times that you're running in. I think it's fortunate for Charlie Baker that the most damaged brand nationally right now is the Democratic <laughs> brand, uh, not the Republican brand. Right. And so therefore, he doesn't have to have that kind of Bill Weld moment, even though he's running very much in the sort of Weld Salucci uh, mode. And I think you contrast that to a race in Kentucky where, um, you know, Alison Lundgren Grimes has been turning herself inside out because she yeah. won't say who she voted for for president. So I think she needs to have a Bill Weld moment where she stands up to the National Party. But for, I mean, timing is everything in so many things in life. And at least least, you know, a couple of weeks before the election, the Republican Party hasn't on a national level made any of those huge gaffes or elevated any of those issues that would reinforce their negative brand with voters across New England and certainly in Massachusetts. I, I, I do want to sort of uh, observe uh, to the contrary of what you're saying, that uh, that we see Bill Clinton coming in uh, this week with a very high-profile uh, rally with Coakley in Worcester, and we have Mitt Romney coming in, uh, being sort of you know slipped in to do a fundraiser and slipped out. Of course, that's Mitt Romney as opposed to the Republican Party in general. Sure, but, the I, but I haven't Party seen a lot of national Republican figures come well, in and Chris do rallies. Christie has been. I think Chris Christie's been in. I suspect you'll see some moderate figures come in. But you know, I think the most telling part of that, David, is it's Bill Clinton and not <laughs> that's, Barack Obama. That's true. And in fact, just to back that up uh, this morning, the Obama folks uh, released a list of, I think, seven states that they're going to travel to to support governors. And Massachusetts was not one, one on that. Well, looking at those poll numbers, I mean, if I were a Democrat running for higher office anywhere in the country, sure. and, you know, Even Obama's here? approval ratings were at the lowest point in his presidency. And, and is it a majority of people now or 50 percent now see the Democratic Party in a negative light? Yeah, the, I, I think that today there was a poll that, that showed uh, the, the worst ratings for the Democrats in 30 years. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. So I wouldn't want the president here, sure. I got to say. Governor Swift, I want to ask you, you, you mentioned um, politics being all about narratives a moment ago. Governor Romney, as you know, has thrived throughout the course of his political career on this narrative of him being the sort of unwilling savior who is pulled into duty 
when the situation is so dire that only he, even though he doesn't want to serve in a particular capacity, only he can make the situation better. That's sort of the way he approached uh, coming to run for governor when you were acting governor. And Salt I'm, Lake City Olympics, absolutely. for sure. Salt Lake yep. City Olympics, yes. What do you think about a possible Romney presidential run in 2016? Well, I heard Anna Navarro on CNN this morning uh, sharing an Ann Romney quote where she said, done, done, <laughs> done with period six times uh, in 12 words. So uh, that would lead me to believe he's not running. But I think that's a very astute observation that he has had this uh, great narrative that he's developed of being you know, the knight in shining armor uh, who rides to the rescue. I will also say as a former politician, it's nice to have a good positive narrative narrative after mm. you've left office, it's always better to have people saying nice things about you uh, than not wanting you to show up on their doorstep. So whether he's going to run again or not, um, reestablishing that narrative after two uh, presidential losses, I think, is a testament uh, to their focus on creating these positive narratives. Do you think he'd be a strong candidate if he runs? I I do believe he would be a strong candidate. I think he's obviously got the national fundraising base and for where the National Republican Party today is, he's relatively speaking a moderate. Is there any uh, particular Republican potential candidate for president who uh, who you like? Not I'm not asking you to endorse right now, but just any of them uh, who appeal to you right now? Uh, Chris Christie's brand of politics fit mine very well. Mm. Um, some of the Boston press corps who cover me back in the day might say we have the same personality, um, <laughs> but uh, I or maybe now, the same body now, type. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, did, oh come did, on! Did, don't, wait, don't wait, wait a minute. Didn't he get in trouble for taking a helicopter ride though? Remember, uh, you know uh, what? I think he might have. Uh, um, a little little but, empathy for him. Is that was that? Uh, uh, actually, I think he's... Adam, uh, Adam's giving me this look like like I'm the meanest person who ever lived for, for pointing that out. I, uh, so I think uh, Chris Christie, you know, obviously has some issues he has to overcome, but who doesn't? I also am a big fan of Jeb Bush. I think Jeb hmm. is one of the smartest chief executives I uh, like him, have spent my time out of office focused on educational excellence and the fact that with his name and his reputation, he could have looked to impact any issue uh, that he cared a great deal about and has been focused on education um, is something that I admire a great deal. And I also happen to have some very good friends who I admire a great deal who are you know, very close to Governor Bush. So on a number of fronts, I think um, you know, I would be very supportive of Jeb Bush, but I'm not entirely sure he's going to run. He might also have family members who are done, done, done. <laughs> Governor, I want to ask you about the um, the sort of ideological nature of the GOP at this point in time. As you know, there were a whole bunch of primaries this year where, uh, quote unquote, establishment candidates successfully fended off challenges from Tea Party candidates. Uh, which in some quarters was cited as proof that the Tea Party movement has kind of petered out and the establishment in the GOP is ascendant. But other people made the argument, including Peter Kadz, as he's very keen on this, our, our colleague here at WGBH, made the argument that it really didn't matter if Tea Party candidates lost in the primaries because they have, over the course of the past few years, successfully pulled the GOP to the right. I'm wondering if you think that is a correct analysis and if it's true that the GOP has been pushed rightward by the Tea Party, do you think that's problematic? I um, do believe that they have had an impact in pulling the party to the right. I 
actually admire their efforts to pull the party to the right on fiscal matters. And their entire moniker uh, started and I think was at the zenith of its strength when it was around the fact that whomever goes to Washington seems to end up as their default position spending a ton (laughs) of taxpayer money and centralizing power. You know, I travel a lot for work today. And over the last eight years, it has been extraordinary and extraordinarily apparent how much stronger the economy is in the northern Virginia and greater D.C. area than it is almost anywhere else in the United States. And that's offensive to me. I think it's offensive to fiscal conservatives. And I think it's the place that we as a party uh, agree on issues and need to be focused The Tea Party lost me when it somehow morphed into this conservative movement on social issues. I don't remember tea going into Boston Harbor over abortion. (laughs) Um, It's just that's not how I learned it. My eighth grade girls are doing U.S. history. It's not the way they teach it today. And so I think this last election cycle was very positive for the party. I think there's a lot of work yet uh, to be done. And part of that will fall to whomever becomes the standard bearer in this next election who can talk sensibly about immigration um, and how that can drive economic growth, can talk rationally about the extraordinary consolidation of power that I think is bad in Washington, D.C., and the excessive tax burden uh, that comes along with that. And when we get both a party figure who speaks compellingly uh, to a broad swath of the electorate on those issues that we all agree with, then I think our time in the wilderness will be over. I think there's hope, but not yet proof that we're there. Completely changing the subject here. I want want to ask you about Paul Cellucci, of course, the former governor who who, uh, passed away from uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease not long ago, uh, and obviously who you work closely with uh, and knew. And uh, what do you think his political legacy is on the state? Lower income taxes. So if you remember, uh, Paul took on the task of putting a ballot question on the ballot uh, during our race in 1998 to repeal the income tax back to its traditional 5%. And well, uh, the legislature never honored that. Um, It has prevented Massachusetts and I think sent a very strong message to Democrats and Republicans on Beacon Hill that there is a strong sentiment around fiscal conservatism in Massachusetts. And the fact that that ballot question garnered nearly 60 percent of the vote, I think, is Paul's lasting legacy. On a quieter uh, place, the work he did to support nurses, he was one of the first politicians, never mind Republicans, one of the first politicians to be pro-choice and pro-gay rights. His brand, quiet, respectful brand of Republicanism, um, I think, is one to be emulated. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's striking to me uh, oftentimes when I am uh, talking to policy sorts of people, they often point to how Paul Cellucci as as governor uh, supported a particular effort that that maybe wasn't heard about much that that he was supporting it, uh, but that he you know fought for to keep funding in or to to make the services delivered better or whatever. It, maybe just he wasn't as much of a polarizing figure, so people don't think. It that wasn't about it. a headline grabber, but I will tell you. 
Um, I think we should all wish to have the legacy that Paul left, which is beloved by his family and friends and respected by all the folks that he worked with. And uh, at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Looking back on your time in office, do you think that the way that the media um, covered you holds any lessons for what female politicians of either party have to deal with when they are either in office or running for office? Yes. (laughs) Um, But I think so it's hard to be first. And I think there is a lot of research um, and more today than there was when I was in office. I wish I'd had uh, the benefit of reading around focus on appearance, uh, the three H's, you know, hair, hemlines, and husbands. All of those things uh, got an enormous amount of attention when I was governor. And there are now some better proven strategies to inoculate yourself from those. Um, One of the things that I continue to talk and care a lot about is how women and men can better integrate their responsibilities uh, at home and at work. And one of the unfortunate things about the extraordinary attention that gets paid to women's family life is that you almost have to put up such a wall uh, between that family life and your work in order to be successful at work. And that sort of cuts against everything we're trying to do as a society to help families to be healthy at a time when, listen, in this economy, work is very demanding and uh, the requirements of it are critically um, impactful on the other responsibilities that you have at home. I continue uh, to struggle and grapple with that. I hope uh, I am helping to build a workplace that incorporates flexibility and understanding for women and men who have responsibilities outside of work while still being a high-achieving, fast-growing, exciting place to work. And, you know, increasingly, this new generation of workers, men and women, young men and young women, value those uh, abilities to develop self, to uh, nurture their interests and their passions, and eventually their desire to form family units and be active participants in their family life. So some of those lessons actually are going to serve leaders well uh, as we see a changing workforce. I'm really glad that you uh, mentioned both men and women uh, in those comments because I have been driven nuts. I mean, I know different people are driven nuts by this narrative for different reasons. But the whole, you know, can women really have it all debate? It seems to ignore the fundamental fact to me, and I say this as a parent of two fairly young kids, that uh, as you just pointed out, it's not just women who want to find a way to strike a balance between the work they do and the life they have with their family because they want to maintain that balance. So thank you for noting that it's not just a a women thing, but a, a human thing. It is a human thing. And I think the difference is no one will ask you questions that are difficult to answer in a place and time about whether or not you're trying to have it all. And it's still too often the case in too many workforces that men can uh, 
get high fives from their colleagues by leaving early to go to a soccer game. And women have to hide that fact and sneak out because they fear uh, that folks will believe they're not committed to their job. Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you are doing right now as CEO of Middlebury Interactive Languages? I'm not. So we provide digital language learning content to schools across the country. About 200,000 students will have the opportunity to benefit from our terrific assets in Chinese, French, German, Latin, and Spanish this year. Um, Too many schools are eliminating language learning programs at the very time that our global economy requires them to have greater competence in those courses. We help schools to bridge scarce resources. Those resources, you know, folks often define as money, but they're also having teachers who speak the language and are passionate about it and time in the schedule for students, frankly, who with Common Core and state standards that I support, uh, spend less and less of their curriculum on other enriching material. You're teaching some at Williams, right? I do. I continue to teach political leadership. It's been eight years now that I've taught this class in the spring. Some of the smartest, most dynamic kids you'll ever meet. Um, and a lot of my old friends in the press. So Rick Klein, who's at ABC News oh, now. Yeah, good guy. Uh, yeah. yeah, comes back to my class. Neil Newhouse, uh, who was my pollster and then Mitt Romney's pollster, uh, has been to my class every single year. I've gotten Elise Labatt from CNN. So uh, my kids get a very, my kids, my students uh, get a very, very hands-on view of the strategies and communication and tactics that work or don't, uh, as the case may be, uh, in political leadership today. And I predict one of them uh, or more will go on to do something I'll be very proud of in electoral politics. And that's your alma mater, right? No, I no, went to I just, Trinity, I so I had a up. lot okay. more fun. Uh, I was in the same <laughs> – I was in the New England Small College Athletic Conference, but uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, the, actually. Williams is, the, is like the Jeffs or something, right? Eves, right? Eves. No, that's Amherst. Oh, oh, oh I went to Tufts, so I was in the, it was in the same Oh, conference. you were a jumbo. I know. And so I think I, Amherst, I where, where I um, was unable to gain admittance, is yeah, actually I, the – I couldn't get into oh, Amherst. Nice. On that note, Governor Jane Swift, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Governor. It's really a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Jane Swift was the Republican governor of Massachusetts from 2001 to 2003. She's now the CEO of Middlebury Interactive Languages in Middlebury, Vermont. If you like what you hear from The Scrum, you can subscribe to The Scrum in iTunes. If you don't know how to find The Scrum in iTunes, you can find links to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and all that good stuff on our blog, which is at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. I'm Adam Riley. I was joined today by WGBH political analyst David Bernstein and WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis. Our producer is Abby Ruzica. Our engineer this week was Antonio Oliar. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.